0: 451 4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206 842 3620. Eight four two seven four one zero or contact them online at Eagle Harbor I got something for your mind, body, and soul. your mind body and soul
1: you have found the bystander podcast now here's your host with the most tiny tim
0: what's cracking Podcastville? Today's podcast is brought to you with additional support from Shift Bainbridge, B.I. Hoops and more, and Sound Reaper Graphics in the Pavilion. Today's audio was recorded Wednesday, February 26, 2020 at the Forum in Seattle. The discussion is about Sound Transit's fight to save light rail. Today's guests are Bob Woodnick and Joni Earl, who both served on Sound Transit. Enjoy.
1: Well, thanks all for uh, coming tonight. It's great to see so many familiar faces, and a lot of you probably know the Sound Transit story as well as, well as uh, Joni and I. But um, let me briefly uh, set the scene about uh, the struggle to get light rail in Seattle. It's always been a tough fight, and Seattle voters, starting in 1968 and then again in 1970, uh, turned down opportunities to build light rail in the Seattle area. In fact, when voters in 1970 turned down light rail, they also turned down $900 million in federal dollars that were earmarked for the Seattle system. And that money instead went to Atlanta to build their light rail system. So in the Puget Sound in the next 25 years, um, there were just a couple decades of of studies that basically collected dust on library shelves. And it wasn't until 1995 when another vote came up, and it too was defeated. A year later, in November of 1996, voters in Central Puget Sound finally approved a a mass transit system for uh, the Central Puget Sound region. And that included regional express buses, Uh, commuter trains uh, running on Burlington Northern Tracks uh, from Everett and then just south of of Tacoma into Seattle and back. But the centerpiece of that project, and by far the most expensive part of it, was uh, a plan to build light rail from SeaTac Airport to Seattle and to the University of Washington. Voters were told and they approved a plan, uh, the sound transit package, Uh, would be that this whole uh, system would be built for $3.9 billion and crucially it would be completed in just 10 years. And it was the next day after the vote that the uh, clock started ticking, 10 years. Transit supporters were real giddy at the time but here finally was a mass transit system that that this growing sophisticated uh, city really needed. But it was about that time, I would think about 1997, when most of the public stopped paying attention to what was happening at Sound Transit. After all, light rail had been voted on and it was coming, and let the experts do their job. And then by 2006, we'd all be riding light rail to the airport. Now fast forward about four years to the fall of 2000, Joni Earle had just quit her a powerful job as dep- Deputy uh, Executive Director of Snohomish County Government and to join the Sound Transit team as its chief, o- chief Operating Officer. Joni didn't have any transit experience when she walked through the doors of Sound Transit uh, Union Station in October of 2000. So, Joni, why don't you tell us what you found when you got to Sound Transit and started looking into it?
2: Well, I was hired as Chief Operating Officer And I was chosen for the job because I knew organizations. I'd been a city manager and I was deputy executive. And Bob White, the executive director at the time, said, I want you to focus on the organization. We had a citizens oversight panel, and Sound Transit was building, was supposed to be building projects all over the three county region. And the citizens oversight panel sent some critical letters to the board saying, there isn't an agency wide Project Management culture at Sound Transit. And the organization had was structured with three lines of business. It had a light rail department, a commuter rail department, and an express bus department. And everything from design and engineering to construction management to operations was held within each department. So each department did things differently. And um, that led to a lot of problems. And it was interesting, when I first got there, they had just opened bids for light rail from the maintenance base down in Soto up to the University of Washington. And Bob told me that the bids came in $350 million over budget. And he said, but you don't have to worry about that because I'm focused on that. I need you focused on the organization and the organization structure. So a week later, I was in a meeting with Bob and Paul Bay, the light rail director, and paul they were trying to figure out how they were going to figure this problem out. And Paul Bay said, well, if the board would just say no, we wouldn't have a cost problem. And I said, excuse me, but what does that mean? And he said, well, the board keeps saying yes to all the neighborhoods where stations are going to be built, and it's just ringing up the costs." And I said, well, have you ever told them we couldn't afford it? And he said, no, they don't want to hear that. And I'm like, oh, we have a problem. And so then Bob turned to me and said, I want you to look at the project from top to bottom. Look at the cost estimates and everything else. So I hired a consultant, Tuck Wilson, who's here. um, to He knew Light Rail. He had worked on the Portland MAX system to come up and help me because I didn't know squat about Light Rail. And um, we sat at a conference table With everybody that had a piece of the cost estimate, we had a three-ring binder that was called the Green Book, and it had all the assumptions behind the cost estimate. And when we got to the real estate number, I said, so, Jerry, how did you come up with this number? And she said, we didn't. And I said, what do you mean you didn't? And she said, we gave a different number to Light Rail. They changed the number. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I said, Paul, how did you come up with the number? And he said, we just put it in so the budget would balance. <laughs> and I looked at Tuck at the other end of the table, and our eyes were this big around. And uh, we spent the next 15 or 16 days, 8 to 10 hours a day, going through all of the cost estimates. And we came out of that process announcing that we were $1.1 billion over budget, and we couldn't open the line until 2009 instead of 2006. So that started our journey. <laughs> Welcome
1: to Sound Transit, right? So the billion-dollar dollar question is, what, what happened? What were the factors that caused the, the, pro, the process?
2: Well, the real estate number was $300 million off, and the sound move plan that was approved by the voters made an assumption that there'd be 100 employees that was gonna build all of this commuter rail and light rail and bus infrastructure. And we already had 150 employees when I started. So the agency administration costs were about 300 million higher. And then there was scope. There was scope that the board had added as they negotiated with the communities. So that was about another $400 million. So there was no fraud and abuse and all that. It was just they didn't have a system internally that managed cumulative cost as it was happening. So that's one of the changes we made is uh, we brought in a new cost estimating system and uh, a new project was called a project control system which is where you track scope, schedule, and budget, and you write down all your assumptions. And, and then I hired a new light rail director. Tuck gave up on us. And I hired a new light rail director, Ahmad Fazel, and he just was magic. He was so disciplined and so focused. And he said to me, if we break up this project into segments, we can deliver it. And I'm like, okay. So um, we started on an initial, instead of going north first, which was the most challenging part of the alignment because it was under Fortage Bay and tunneling and all that. So we started in, in an area from Tukwila to downtown Seattle, and we called it the initial segment, excuse me, And Ahmad and his team looked at the, using the new cost estimating system, came up with a budget for that part of the project. And um, let's see. I lost my train of thought. Um, They came up with a cost estimate and the new schedule. And by gosh, they lived by that and we opened the new initial segment exactly on July 2006 which was what we told the board back in 1990 or back in 2000 we'd be able to do and I remember at the time going oh my gosh it's going to take nine years to build this light rail segment and it did It took. we were still shining the, the silver at the Beacon Hill Tunnel Station the morning that we opened it
1: <laughs> so it Let's let's talk just a minute about the uh, full funding grant agreement. This, this was now we're late 2000, getting into 2001, and this is when the uh, federal um, grant that Sound Transit was seeking really, really hit. And um, just a little background of um, Sound Transit for its light rail system uh, needed a $500 million federal grant, and it was a torturous process to get to to where we eventually got that grant and it was the it was signed in um, January of of 2001 the federal government uh, signed it but even that was really difficult because that was the the last day of the Clinton administration and as one of the last acts of the Clinton administration was to sign this federal grant over to to uh, sound transit and it was Uh, Terribly controversial. I mean, it was like one of the last things that the Clinton administration... They didn't want to have anything to do with it because Sound Transit had gotten so controversial at that time that they just wanted to step away from it, but they did sign it, Rodney Slater, um, and we got the grant, but uh, Joni, you can probably fill in a little bit about what happened after we got the grant. That's when things really hit the fan.
2: (laughs) Well, actually... um... We got the grant in December of 2000, but then about a week later, we announced the $1.1 billion overrun, so the feds pulled the grant. And then once we came up with the new budget and the new schedule, then we went back through the process and we got the grant in January 2001. But um, we also had a new Congress, and the chair of the House Transportation Appropriations Committee ordered an Office of Inspector General audit on us. And that held up our money. And Patty Murray was just a godsend. She, In fact, she and Norm Dix had their staff sit outside Rodney Slater's office until they signed that grant in 2001. Um, So... We had the board had adopted the initial segment the scope schedule and budget, and then they held the five hundred million dollars, so then we had a cash flow problem, so I had to go back to the board and tell them we can't build the project on the on this timeline because we don't have enough cash because they're holding it up so Patty held the grant, but she wouldn't let the federal transit administration reappropriate that grant to another project. She held it in abeyance until we got everything squared away. She was just amazing. And um, so the grant was held up until we got through the Inspector General Review, which was about two years, I think. Yeah. Two years that we had Inspector General staff crawling all over the agency. And finally they gave us a... Clean Villa Health, and then we got the grant. Hmm. That was a happy day at Sound Transit. (laughs) Because there's not one of the light rail systems in the country that isn't built with federal money Hmm. someplace in it.
1: Yeah. So while this was all playing out with the federal grant, um, headlines were in the newspaper, and the opponents were were getting uh, stronger, and we started to, I think, one way of putting it was we started to lose the hearts and minds of the public. Um, Sound Transit became a, a really uh, a kind of a, a dirty name in, in the region. Everybody was mad at Sound Transit. And trying to hold together the political support to get the federal grant and then um, trying to hold the public together was, was really hard. And Joni, can you tell us a little bit, how did you deal with the angry board members and the politicians and the public um, at that time because there was a lot of anti-sound transit um, stuff going on, and and I know you had to deal with it firsthand.
2: Yeah, we had one thing going for us, which is people wanted light rail. So they were mad at the agency, hated the agency, but they wanted what the agency was supposed to produce, so that helped us and my theory was we just needed to deliver we needed to deliver on commuter rail we needed to deliver on more buses and more bus infrastructure which was park and rides and direct access ramps and so the so that the public could see we were producing and it was interesting when we when we built the segment of light rail out to Tukwila, which is elevated over the freeway and down to the, there and on to SeaTac when we put the pillars in and then we used a big gantry machine that dropped in the elevated section and people could drive along the freeway and see that happening. And people would call us and say, is that light rail? Is that light rail? So we knew we hadn't lost the hearts and minds for light rail. They just didn't really care for Sound Transit. (laughs) And with the board, the board was being really beat up in editorials and things saying that they didn't do proper oversight and they were being blamed for all the problems when it wasn't the board's fault. The staff hadn't told the board what was going on and uh, with the board I just spent a lot of time. I have an 18-member board or there's an 18-member board and I spent a lot of time on the phone calling them individually to tell them of our progress and then we would report at the board meetings on our progress and so it was just a matter of a little hand-holding and just assuring them that I was on top of it, along with mod and the rest of the staff.
1: Joan, I have a confession to make. One of, the, uh, one of the ways that I really learned about what was happening at Sound Transit during those days was you and I used to carpool every once in a while to yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> and inevitably, there would be a phone call... Uh, on, this, on this trip into Seattle from Everett area, and it would be somebody like Norm Dix, and you'd have him on the speakerphone. <laughs> and that's how I heard about, about what was really going on at Sound Transit. <laughs> and the other way that I found out about it was sitting outside your office while I was waiting to get in to, in to talk to you, I'd hear you on the phone, and you'd be uh, dealing with uh, angry board members and uh, Patty Murray, and and it's like, oh, so that's what's happening at Sound Transit, because I could hear you talking to them.
2: (laughs) One of the things that we started, Bob and I, at the direction of our communications director and fantasy was um, a CEO report that went out every Friday, and we would track our progress, and we'd tell our story which was really important. We forgot to tell our story for the longest time. After the voters approved the plan in 1996, we went dark. And we, weren't, we just weren't engaging the public on what was happening. And so Bob and I started sending out this CEO update every Friday, and I'd get calls from people saying, now I can go home, I've gotten your report. <laughs> so I knew people were reading it.
1: Yeah. So, and that was one of the ways of building back trust. I mean, we talked about how uh, people in the community had lost respect for Sound Transit. And and you became the face of the agency when you you first, Bob White, um, the executive director, left in January of 2001. And you'd been there a total of four months. Three months. And suddenly you were leading the agency. You had no transit experience before that. <laughs> so suddenly this is your baby to, to sink or swim. And I hadn't
2: even rode a, rode a bus.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: I remember uh, Charlie, your, your husband, used to bring you a change of clothes because you used to work so many... Uh, you spend the night, basically, at Sound Transit during yeah. those days working. And... And that was one of the, it was just, you know, the, the whole question of how do you build back trust in the, in, and, and I know one of the, the things that you promoted and, and we did was we came, became more transparent, mm-hmm. and you admitted that, we admitted that there were problems, and, and, one, and another way of, of, sh- of showing how we worked was um, um, showing small victories. Whenever we had a small victory, We'd make a big deal out of that. Do you remember some of those?
2: Yeah. We started a milestones report that we put out in January of every year, and we broke it down by quarter, and we said what the public could expect of us during that quarter. We listed projects and different things, and then we did a quarterly report that reported on how we had done. So it was a way to keep the public watching us and seeing what we were doing. Um, I lost track of your well, question.
1: Well, and some of the other things I remember. Um, whenever there was a small victory with um, an ST Express bus line, or um, I remember Sounder commuter rail had started running in in two thousand, late two thousand, and I think the first time we carried the the uh, first millionth passenger or something. We did made a big deal out of it. We picked some poor guy out of the crowd that was getting off a sound transit or a a sounder train and said, Hey, you're the lucky five hundred or you're the millionth passenger. Did you know that? And we took his picture and (laughs) (laughs) gave him a souvenir and sent him on his way and he was probably shaking his head like, Really? What's going on here? But but that was one way that that I think you promoted getting Showing the public that we were making some sort of progress. Meanwhile, we were slogging away on, on light rail.
2: Yeah, we were slogging away on light rail because while we were had the initial segment under construction, we were still trying to figure out how we were going to get to the University of Washington. And so we, we just found little things to celebrate. And what, what we had going for us was commuter rail had started between Tacoma and Seattle in September of 2000. And then our regional express bus service started in 1999 with about half of the routes. And then we added routes over the years. And so each time we would add a new route, we'd have a, a ribbon cutting or something that would get the media's attention. And that helped. Just, we just needed to show, the key with the public, in my view, was we had to deliver. We had to show we were delivering against the plan. And those little celebrations helped to do that.
1: Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the opposition and why they were so strong. Do you, I'm sure you recall <laughs> um, those days. Um, in, in 2001, there were eight separate entities organized to fight sound transit. Some of them were stronger than others, frankly, but um, it seemed like the attacks were coming from everywhere, and why, why do you think it was that the opposition was so strong?
2: Well, there was opposition to rail. There was a, a group of people that really felt that the solution was just more buses, even though buses get caught in the same traffic as cars. And um, we had Kemper Freeman, the owner of Bellevue Square, who was very opposed to rail. He saw it as social engineering because of transit-oriented development where they build density around rail stations. And he, boy, he fought hard. And Emery Bundy fought really hard. He was an environmentalist, and he just was dead set against rail. And these people fought the plan in 1996 before it passed. And then when those bids came in on the North Segment, um, rumors broke out, that Sound Transit was over budget, and that rejuvenated the opposition. And they were calling for audits and everything to try to derail us. Um, But they didn't.
1: No. (laughs) Well, the opposition also included two former governors.
2: Right. John
1: Spellman and Booth Gardner. Booth Gardner,
2: yeah. Well, Emery Bundy was Booth Gardner's roommate in college. (laughs) And... And Emory got to him. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And Kemper Freeman has a lot of money, and he spent over a million dollars over the years against Sound Transit. Yeah. So um, I think that was probably one of the big things that separated this region from other regions was um, the deep pockets of, of and the commitment. Um, Emory Bundy would spend 8 or 10 hours a day um, doing what he could to to stop light rail. I mean, it was back in those days, it was called whoops on wheels. I don't know if you remember whoops or not, but uh, yeah, <laughs> we were whoops on wheels. And so, uh, and they had um, influence with uh, local reporters and newspapers and, and newspaper reporters and editorial board writers. And so it seemed like I remember one time you were saying it was a happy day when Sound Transit wasn't on the front page of one of the newspapers.
2: Yeah, we had a party. (laughs) So, Bob, why did you focus the book on 2001?
1: Well, 2001 was was really the year when um, it was make or break for Light Rail. And for all of the reasons that we've kind of been talking about... um, that was when so much was happening. We had the ffga and, and we 'll talk in a minute about the the p i and, and the uh, your hal rogers testimony and, and But that was really the year when it could have gone either way for light, for light rail in this region and so that 's why I, I focused on on that time and and also, there was a lot of um, outside of sound transit two thousand and one was a very interesting year. there was a lot of uh, monumental events happening uh, in Seattle in the country, and uh, you know, f- f- in, you know, for uh, perspective, in 2001, Ichiro joined the Mariners for the first time. <laughs> Remember that 116 games last time we were in the playoffs. Um, Nisqually earthquake hit and mm-hmm. damaged Union Station, which was our headquarters. So. Um, that was quite a day. I remember jumping under the desk. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my goodness, what's this? Um, 2001, Boeing moved its headquarters to Chicago. Um, and then, of course, we had the 9-11 attacks um, in September of that year. So there were a lot of things going on in 2001, just you know, to put what was happening in sound transit into some sort of context. So, um So we talked a little bit about the opposition, and, and we talked a little bit about the press. But the big story about the press in 2001 was the PI story. And um, just, I don't know if you guys remember this or not, maybe not, but, but um, in May of, 2000, of 2001, there was a story in the Seattle PI that many thought was going to be the end of Sound Transit, that this was going to lead to uh, the end of it. And I, re- I recall it. It was a Friday morning, and it was back in, um, like I said, in May of 2001. But back in those days, we actually had newspapers, and we actually had news- newspaper racks. Remember those things? <laughs> I was at my uh, park and ride getting on a bus when I-, I looked over at the PI news rack, and I saw this huge headline above the fold, uh, Rail Costs Concealed. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> I don't even want to look at this. What is this? So, um, But story, basically, the story alleged that the true costs of light rail had been knowingly and deliberately withheld from voters and bond investors, in effect creating a securities fraud. And the story reverber- reverberated across the region and a lot of uh, the critics and the opponents were thinking this was a silver bullet that would bring down light rail. And um, in fact, I remember uh, uh, Ann Fantasy, who was our acting communications director, who was a former um, governor's uh, press uh, secretary, called up uh, Governor Gary Locke on his, on his phone. She had a direct line to him and, and said, uh, you might want to know about this headline that just came out. <laughs> Uh, And he was because he was a board member uh, when this decision was made. And so she was worried that an acting or a sitting governor was going to get implicated in a securities fraud scheme. And it was pretty ugly. And so, Joni, tell us about how you heard about this story and, and where you were at the time.
2: Well, I was on the international city county management Association Board of Directors, and I was in Washington, D.C. at a board meeting, and you're not supposed to have your cell phones with you. And my phone just kept going and going and going about every 30 seconds. So finally I excused myself and stepped out and listened to my messages, and they were from Ann, and she was like, oh, my God, you're not going to believe this. The the PI has a story that's accusing the board of securities fraud, and I'm like, oh, my God. And um, so I turned around and got on a flight back to Seattle, and we spent the weekend, about six or seven of us spent the weekend going through the PI story paragraph by paragraph and looking for our documents that would prove the story wrong. And we put together this three-ring binder, and um, we called up the PI and asked to have a meeting to go over the story, and they begrudgingly gave it to us, and um, we were about halfway through the meeting, and they were they were just stone. Their faces were just stone. And we were going through our information. And um, one of the editors closed up the ring binder and stood up and said, "That'll be all." And Fenn said, uh, "Just so you know, in an hour, we're giving the same material to the Seattle Times." to the Associated Press, to Cairo and King, and all that. And uh, they said, well, we'll take that under advisement. And they left. They just left us in this conference room. And we waited and waited because we were asking for a correction. And then the following week, I think it was a Tuesday, I was walking down from the county courthouse to our offices, and my cell phone rang. And it was Chris McGann, the PI reporter who'd written the story. And his, he left a message and it said, uh, this is uh, Chris McGann. Uh, I just wanted to uh, let you know that we're running a correction and I wanted to get a quote from you. And I was like, hallelujah, hallelujah. And they did. They ran a front page correction on the story.
1: This is unheard of.
2: <laughs> a major
1: metropolitan newspaper doing a correction on a on a story of that magnitude. Right.
2: They said it didn't meet their standards.
1: Yeah, and that the, that notebook that we came up with that um, you refuted all of the allegations in the in the story. I for for the book I, I talked with a um, Thomas Shapley who is a, a PI. He was a, a member of the uh, of the PI board, and he said that that notebook with that information was the best example he'd ever seen in his entire career of or, you know, of, of refuting a newspaper story. And in fact, when I talked with him, he was retired and, and living on a ranch in central Washington. He said, you know what? I still have a copy of that notebook. I carried it with me. <laughs> <laughs> Just to show people how to do it. This is how you refute it.
2: That was a real turning point for the agency because the employees were feeling beleaguered and stuff with all the headlines about Sound Transit and the light rail project. And here we had the commuter rail department, which was ready to celebrate like they should have for opening the line from Tacoma to Seattle. And the bus, bus department was delivering projects and service. And the employees saw that we were going to stand up and fight for them. And that really changed the tide quite a bit. Um, And the board saw that we were going to stand up and fight and win. So it calmed the board down, too. So, Bob, as an employee, what was it like in 2001?
1: (laughs) It was pretty tough. Um, We felt like we were under siege a lot. And um, I remember a lot of people and me included, I guess. You didn't want to wear your sound transit badge outside the office because <laughs> you'd get badgered by people. Oh, you work for sound transit. Oh, you know. I can remember several instances of being at parties or uh, my daughter's first middle school dance, and I was a chaperone, and, and I'm trying to en- enjoy the being a chaperone at my daughter's dance, and people kept coming up to me, oh, Sound Transit, here's what you should do. You know, you should build it right down the freeway. And It was like all night long, and it, it was like that just about everywhere you went during those days, and um, people would be t- would be talking about going on kayaking trips or whatever, and all people wanted to talk about was Sound Transit, so it was tough in that regard. But on the other hand, Inside the agency, there was a real strong sentiment of, of uh, camaraderie. Um, we we're f- sort of we 're together and we 're going to fight this thing we 're doing something good for the region. We all believed in the mission um, of, of building a mass transit system for a, a, a community that really needed it. So there was that feeling as well. I think inside we felt a sense of we 're in this together, but we 're going to fight and we 're going to win it so mm-hmm. When you talked earlier, Joni, about the, um, the PI story, and you, and you talked about I was kind of a turning point. And one of the things, one of the turning points I think was, I think we, we talked about it in the book, was uh, the strong counterpunch. In other words, never let a untruth go, go unchallenged. Uh, before that, I think Sound Transit would um, take a lot of shots in, from the community, and, and some of the things were, were not really accurate. But we'd sort of say, well, that's, you know, we're gonna let it go because uh, people will forget about it. And that really wasn't the case. People remembered all of those things. And after the, uh, the PI story, um, and I think you were, you were part of, of, the, uh, of the new way of, of challenging everything. If, so if there was something, that, a story or whatever that was, was wrong or somebody had something in the community that said something that was untruthful, um, we challenged it in, in a real forceful way.
2: Yeah, my view was if they're going to hold us accountable, we can hold them accountable too, to the media. So we started a quick response team in our communications department, so they scanned every newspaper article every morning and afternoon, and, boy, if there was anything wrong, they fired off a correction request. And the media, they got we got their attention. Right. <laughs>
1: And as an employee, it felt good, too, that we were fighting back, I have to say. Yeah. We remembered that. Let's talk a little bit about the lawsuits. Remember all the lawsuits we had oh, over yeah. the years? You know, ranging from uh, construction work in the Rainier Valley. We even had one where where uh, somebody was was working on a toilet somewhere and, 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 and said that the rail line, work on the rail line, caused the toilet to explode and knock to the floor and in a flood of filthy raw sewage. That was the range of, of lawsuits. That we but tell, tell us a little about the SANE Transit lawsuit, because that was the one that was really worrisome uh, yeah. to the agency, because that got to 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 where it could have really done damage and even maybe stopped the agency at the time.
2: Yeah, the SANE Transit lawsuit was, um, they alleged that, Well, they didn't allege. It was true. We were, under the sound move plan, we were supposed to build 21 miles of light rail in 10 years. And so they were saying that because we weren't going to be able to do that we had broken it into segments, that we should have to go back out to the voters. And we didn't want to go back out to the voters because we had done some polling and our approval rating was down to 42%. So um, they sued us. And we won at the Superior Court level, and then they appealed, and we won at the Supreme Court level. And the reason we won is because within the Sound Move plan was a resolution that the board adopted called Resolution 75, and it laid out what you would do in the case of a shortage of revenues that you could build as much as you could build. So it gave flexibility to us, and that's what we relied on to win the lawsuit. Um, but a, a funny side story to the, to the Supreme Court. So they have signs all over the Supreme Court that says, no cell phones, no cell phones. And I had a cell phone, but I thought it was off, and it wasn't. And I was sitting in there, and there was a case before ours, and my cell phone went off, and I've never moved so fast. I grabbed that phone and got it off. <laughs> my face was all red. And Desmond Brown, our general counsel, looked over at me and he said, I don't know you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: there was a little party afterwards, wasn't there? Yeah, there
2: was a big party afterwards when yeah, we won that us, lawsuit.
1: <laughs> tell us about that, about that.
2: Well, we got the word from the Supreme Court later that we won. And then we had a big party over at FX McRory's. And it was really fun.
1: It was a lot of fun.
2: It was a lot of fun, yeah,
1: <laughs> I remember that so when when you look back on all of this, are there are there any big lessons to be learned, do you think, in all of that happened in in those days, two thousand and one mainly
2: Well, I think one is you can 't lose the public you 've got to keep telling your story so that they 're with you because they're with us for the vote, and then The agency went dark by doing their work. They were writing environmental impact statements and property acquisition and all the stuff that you've got to do to build a system, but they weren't having a conversation with the public. So I think that's a lesson learned. Another thing is you kind of got to expect the unexpected. One of the things that happened on the the university system that was the first original plan was they were going to tunnel under Portage Bay Well, from the time of the plan adoption in 96 to when they were starting to design, the Endangered Species Act had listed Chinook salmon, and that closed the window for when you could be building under Portage Bay. So one of the expensive pieces of that and why we changed the route was how to get soil, what to do with the soil. Mm -hmm. And... um, You just have to kind of expect the unexpected on these large projects. I
1: yeah, remember the uh, Indian artifacts near Duwamish. Yeah. That's well, <laughs> were, we were doing some work near um, Tuckwilla, and, and the and the digging unearthed some, artif- some Indian, old ancient Indian artifacts that stopped construction. Um, for archaeologists, that had to come in and, and find out what was going on. I mean. Some of the things that I remember about unexpected, and when I joined Sound Transit, I, I was really naive when I look back on it. Um, I had believed that once the project was approved that um, all public agencies would sort of hold hands together and, and work together to get this project done for the good of the people, and it didn't really work out like that. <laughs> um, for instance, the, the the city of Tukwila... Um, didn't like the route, and so they they forced us to change the route at a cost of uh, fifty million dollars extra, and also the city of Tequila asked for a new fire truck. <laughs> so uh, um, when I when I think about expect the unexpected, I think about things like that. I, I expect resistance, you know, expect opposition. Um, And Joni um, You know, let me I guess we can start with some questions here in a minute But um, I'm often asked about why I wrote this book And You know, it really started out as a desire to tell um, New Sound Transit employees The story of Sound Sound Transit's beginning I was worried that Because there were so many new uh, faces at the agency that And it had grown so much from, you know, the 23 in 1997 to over 1,000 today that they wouldn't know about the stories that, that really shaped Sound Transit and what had happened to the, the agency. Um, so it's kind of started out as just a, I thought it was just going to be a little, a little story of for, for uh, Sound Transit employees. And then it kind of morphed into something uh, a little bit bigger. Um, Something that may I thought a general audience, uh, a bigger audience would enjoy, uh, reading about. And then, the more I got into it, the more I, I saw how you couldn't really separate the Sound Transit history from the Joni Earl history, and and your history was Sound Transit. And as I started researching for the book, I I figured it maybe in the back of my mind it must have all along just. Figured that I was going to be doing something like this because I noticed that I had all these files of, of really important memos and uh, emails and things that I'd collected over the years that that really helped tell the story about uh, what was going on at Sound Transit. So, um, I don't have any more questions unless you have anything for me. And I think we can open it up if people have any questions.
2: No, I don't have any more.
1: Okay. Should.
2: Wonderful. Thank
0: you both so much for being here. Um, we now have about 15 to 20 minutes for audience questions. Um, like it was mentioned in the intro, please do try to use the microphones if you're able um, so that everyone can hear you and um, people. we can pick you up for our um, assisted listening system. Um, we do also ask you just keep your questions short, form of a question, so we can get through as many as possible. Um, and hopefully we have an interesting conversation for the next 15, 20 minutes.
1: Well, while we're waiting, oh, we do have a question. Um, I'm a contractor. Joni, um,
3: you're an awesome person. You're a beautiful person. A lot of the success of what we have here is because of you. Um, There's been a lot of talk about truthfulness and uh, how you counter the truthful. When you entered the organization, if you remember, everywhere you went, you told the truth. And... um, I don't know, I just personally, as a resident of Seattle, I got my kid here tonight. Um, what we've got here now is for us, but it's really for him and all everybody else. So I don't have a question, I just wanna say, it, <laughs> it's just great to see you, thank you.
2: Oh, thank you very much. I had a lot of help. The Sound Transit staff is amazing.
1: So Joni, you almost didn't become the CEO of Sound Transit. Do you want to tell that story? (laughs) I know you don't, it's probably not a great memory, but uh, Joni had been, (laughs) Joni had only been at the agency, like I said, four months when she became acting director. And then a few months later, I think it was June of 2001, um, the board was was finally ready to start, um, to fill the position, a permanent position, and you were one of the candidates. And I don't know if you want to talk about that day when the the board almost didn't.
2: The night the board asked me if I'd be acting executive director, they asked me if I was going to apply for the job. And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know what you're looking for. If you're looking for a transit expert, that's not me. And uh, they didn't say anything. And then they decided on a process where they'd have a committee of the board interview all the candidates. And then... The, the committee would announce who their preferred candidate was, which I thought was a terrible idea because what if the rest of the board doesn't go along with the committee because it was only a committee of four out of 18. So they went through the interview process. I went through the interview process. And they had a special board meeting to appoint the new CEO or the new executive director at the time. And uh, they went in, and there were TV cameras there. It was in an executive session. And this should have taken a few minutes. And it went on for an hour and an hour and a half. And pretty soon the cameras folded up and left. And um, I went back to my desk. And um, then they came out about, after about three hours. They looked terrible. Like they'd been beat up. And they came back and... Um, asked me to come in, and then they made a motion to approve me as executive director, and there was a second, and then there was a vote, and then they hit the gavel during the meeting. And I was like, that's it? (laughs) That's it? Not like why I was selected or anything? And I was so mad. I was really mad. (laughs) And the chair at the time, Dave Erling, had told me during a break that what was going on in the executive session was the board members were venting with each other about everything that had happened. So it wasn't even about my appointment. It was they were just venting. And it was the first chance that they'd had behind closed doors without the public watching to vent. And there was one board member who was convinced that the entire commuter rail department was going to resign if I was appointed. And um, he kept kind of... What's the word? Filibustering. Um, the executive session. So, when they, I was so mad about how they went about it that I told Bob Drewell and Dave Erling I didn't want their effing job. <laughs> <laughs> and they took me into a conference room and were like, You have to, you have to. And I'm like, I don't want this, I don't want this, why do I want this? And anyway, we, we ended up being friends at the end of that. About an hour in the conference room.
1: Well, I think part of the uh, of the issue was, you were inexperienced in transit, and and some of the board was, right. was talking was talking about, oh, we need somebody with national experience. We need somebody from some other part of the country to to uh, to lead us. But meanwhile. You know, you'd only been there a few months, but you'd already done some remarkable things. So um, it, it was interesting to us as as employees that there was this was even an issue. But hi,
3: I'm an active member in a uh, light rail advocacy group, Seattle Subway, and um, we are really happy with uh, you know what has been done so far, and uh, we, we're taking a look at what is going to happen in the future with ST3 and maybe even something beyond that, ST4. So my question to you is, what do you look forward to having done all of this great work so far um, with a system that is likely to expand to something as big as a D.C. metro system or Chicago system?
2: Well, ST3 takes light rail to Everett and Tacoma and Redmond and Issaquah. So the original vision for um, the the rail vision was to get to those points. It also, ST3 also has in it light rail to Ballard into West Seattle. So at some point, we're in a three-county taxing district. Um, We've hit all the major spots. So I don't know what the future vision will be. I'm not even there anymore, um, but we'll be we'll be doing good to get ST3 delivered. I think.
1: And my vision is to be able to ride light rail from Everett okay. to Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> since I live in Everett. It's getting to Linwood and that's wonderful.
2: Um, I have a question.
4: Um, I'm not involved in any organizations of any kind. I'm just a transit enthusiast and think it's a great thing. So I guess the question is, for someone like me who's not involved
2: politically, who's not um, part of any organizations, what is something that I could say to people who might be still skeptical about the future visions for sound transit and you know transit in general? Thank you. Well, Light Rail today is carrying about 80,000 people. And that's only in the, from SeaTac to uh, University of Washington. So its ability to move people is amazing. There was a once a uh, picture that Transportation Choices Coalition put together that showed a car and with two people in it for HOV and it showed a bus with 79 or 92, depending upon which kind of bus you use, And then it showed a light rail car where you could get 149 people in the one car, and the cars are linked together. So um, I think it's a, it's a choice for people to not have to sit in their cars.
5: Hi. I'm Anirudh Sani. I was responsible for the first sound transit service on Capitol Hill, which was the 545 bus. So uh, you haven't said anything about sub-area equity, so my question is (laughs) about that. Like In my my opinion, it's a terrible thing that forces the cities to subsidize parking garages in the suburbs in the name of transit. Uh, And... uh, how, what do you think of this policy, and how, how much of a problem was it, or, and why did it come about?
2: I hate the policy, but it was a policy of the board, and it was in the sound move plan. But what sub-area equity says is we have five sub-areas in the three-county area, Snohomish County, Pierce County, and three sub-areas in King County, east and south and central And it says that for the money raised in that sub area, it has to be spent in that sub area. So when we were going through the initial problems with the $1.1 billion cost overrun, we had the east side sitting on a ton of money because of sales tax. But we couldn't use any of it towards the light rail project because the light rail project was just the Seattle North piece. And sub area equity stopped us from doing that. Um, so it was it was a policy that was put in place under the assumption that we'd start bus service and then we'd convert to rail service. And we started bus service, but we didn't convert to rail service in any kind of reasonable time frame. So I'm not in favor of the policy because I think we're a region, and the region's money should be spent on the most the best projects in the region. And um, my opinion didn't count. (laughs) And the cities aren't really subsidizing park and rides and stuff. Those are still sound transit projects, most of them. So I don't think that's an issue.
5: Well, the reason I said that was that really um, on the federal level, uh, cars are subsidized more than, car trips are subsidized more than bus trips. And so really transit subsidies are a way to make up for that car subsidy and try and level the playing field a bit. But now if you have transit subsidies being spent to build par- uh, parking garages, then it's only worsening the, the car subsidy even more. So that's yeah. why I said
2: that. Okay.
0: All right, I have a quick question. Uh, so for anyone that's ever used light rail to the airport, You know, everyone knows that awful walk through the parking garage. What happened with, like, locating that station at the airport? Why is it so far away from the terminal?
2: (laughs) Good question. What happened was 9-11.
0: Like, I I did read that there was a plan to build a station closer to a new part of the terminal before 9-11. Was that just canceled because of 9-11 and TSA, or...?
2: It was the new terminal got put on hold, so we had to find a way to... Bring in light rail to the airport without a terminal to bring it straight into. So the airport came up with the idea of using the parking garage, I think. I'm not sure about that. Um, but it's working. It's a long walk, and they have plexiglass up so that it blocks the wind. Um. <laughs> it's a lot better now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. But it really was 9-11 that impacted it.
3: Peter? So we've been asked to phrase our message in the form of a question instead of a speech. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not gonna play ball. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I mean, right now, because TripAdvisor is telling everyone to take a light rail to the city from SeaTac rather than a cab, We've got plenty of people boarding at the airport. I really just wanted to make the point, um, it's a very different agency now, we're north of 1,000 people, and we're building the largest transit expansion program in America, but I was just in Linwood today and meeting with the Economic Alliance of Snohomish County, and I was struck by how easy it is for us to explain to the people of Linwood and Snohomish County the prosperity that they're gonna enjoy when we get light rail up to Linwood. And it really caused me to remember that our job is so easy because your job was so hard. (laughs) When we think about all I need to do when I go to Linwood is to point to what's going on in Bellevue and Redmond and all of the battles that you went through to get Eastlink to happen years after the voters adopted it. Uh, and when you see what's happening in terms of economic development, in terms of density, in terms of corporate relocation, because light rail is coming to the east side, we've really now kind of crested that point where mayors stopped fighting about whether we need this anymore and are only fighting about who's getting the next extension first. So I just want to on behalf of the 1000 plus Sound Transit employees that we have now to say thanks for doing the hard work. We we have our challenges today, we have our headwinds, but it is so much easier because of the hard work that you did. So thank you.
2: Thank you. That was Peter Rogoff, who's the current CEO of Sound Transit. <laughs> An interesting story about Peter. He was—you <laughs> started it. He was—he um, was a Senate staffer in D.C. when all hell broke loose on the project, and I went back there to talk to Senator Murray, and he staffed her committee, and he was just reading me the Riot Act how dare you, you put Patty Murray in the worst position. I'm like, not me, not me. I just got here. Um, but it's interesting that Peter ended up replacing me. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, as a
0: you came into a transit agency without much transit experience, how did you convince the people working within the transit agency who had a ton of experience, how did
2: you convince them to, like, follow you. Did you have, like, a game plan or a process? Well, I focused on the organizational structure first. And so I went around and interviewed people, and, and they knew that my focus was on the organization less than it was on the projects. So probably the biggest battle I had was when we brought in a new project control system because each line of business did their own thing, and they didn't want to be just like light rail and um, I just was a listener, and um, I think a good listener, and uh, I'm a quick learner, so I caught on to the lingo pretty quick. I mean, I didn't even know what a TBM was. Does anybody know what a TBM is?
1: Google Light Rail Construction.
2: (laughs) Tunnel boring machine. Um, So I remember sitting in a meeting with... Joe Gildner, who is the Deputy Executive Director of Light Rail, and he's doing TVM this and TVM that and TVM that, and I finally raised my hand and went, what's a TVM? (laughs) So I was showing I didn't really know very much. But the staff, I don't know, Bob, maybe you can answer that a little bit better than I can.
1: Well, I think one of the things that... that Joni has is she's genuine and I think people and authentic and people pick up on that and I think the staff um, well I knew you because we had worked in Snohomish County together so I knew you but a lot of the staff didn't know you but I think it was um, those qualities and, and also um, you're hard working I mean nobody outworked uh, Joni Earl and like <laughs> I remember when I interviewed Bob Drill for the book, he, he said, you know, when the light was on in, in in Joni's office, she was in there working at 11 or 12 at night, and she wasn't sending emails to friends. She was, you know, working, and I think that um, permeated through the agency, and, and um, you know, so we saw how, how hard-working you were and transparent and, um, you know... You had to do your job, or you were in trouble with Joni. <laughs> Nobody wanted to be in trouble with Joni. Yes.
5: yes, I had a question about, uh, about ST3. You mentioned that there, there are some headwinds, and you, didn't, uh, you weren't overly optimistic when you, you mentioned it earlier. But I'm curious about what, uh, the base of experience that you have. What, what concerns do you have? How optimistic are you about ST3? And what pitfalls do you see perhaps history repeating itself?
2: Oh, I don't mean to sound pessimistic about ST3. It's just a big program. And um, it's just a big program. Uh, Initiative 976, if that, well, it did pass. But it's still to be determined how much it's going to be impacted. But that cuts a big hole out of transit's revenue, which means you may have to, that's the CAR TAB initiative which means you may have to cut back the program like we had to do with the the initial run. So um, that's it. They still have Resolution 75 that gives them authority to be flexible in how they deliver the program. And what's always interesting is those on the ends of the program worry the most about it not getting there. Because you build out from the center. And um, so Everett and Tacoma worry a little bit more because they're on the ends. Um, but I think, I don't know what headwinds Peter was referring to since I'm not there. So, Peter, do you want to answer the question? <laughs>
0: So it looks like we have one more question, um, but I just wanted to say thank you all again so much for being here and just give you a heads up that books are for sale at the third place books table right over there um, and our bar is open for a while after the event if you want to stay and hang out. So again, thank you and, and one final question.
3: Um, I've heard from friends at Sound Transit, and I don't know if these stories are apocryphal, but just your level of leadership, and we've heard this here tonight as well, um, was pretty incredible when the staff was under a lot of stress and was worried about, will we be able to fulfill this? And I've heard various different quotes of, like, your principles and things you tell staff when they're concerned, and I don't know if these are true, but things like, hey, it's about the work um, and helping keeping people focused. Uh, Given not many of us, I think, luckily, have entered such dire circumstances and then had to turn it around, Could you tell us about some of your principles and some of the things that you told staff during this hard time uh, to keep them going? Like, What were your principles at the time? We'd love some other additional Joni Erdl quotes from the time.
2: (laughs) Well, one thing I told them was, optimism is not our friend. (laughs) Because you can't get optimistic about cost estimates or revenue estimates or too optimistic. Um, So that was one phrase that I coined. Um, I did just say, focus on the work. If we can deliver the work, we'll win back the public. And I think that's true. I think we have, or we wouldn't have ST2 and ST3. Um, I told them that I would stand up and take the hits for the agency, like, I've never been yelled at as much as I was yelled at by Frank Chop and Ed Murray from the legislature. They were like, We're on a tree and we're on a limb, and Sound Transit cut off the limb. (laughs) Because they've been very (laughs) supportive. Was that
5: for
2: the first hill station? Yes. Yep. Yeah, one of the things that we had to cut out of the initial. Out of from the initial project plan was a station on First Hill, because it was too risky, and uh, that wasn't very popular with the board. But Ahmad recommended it, and I supported Ahmad in that.
1: Joni, I know that. Just to follow up on that, that um, you learned a lot from your dad. Your your yeah. dad was the. Uh, at one time was the mayor of Bramerton and on the city council and he taught you a lot about public service and um, what, what are some of the other things that you learned from your, from your dad?
2: Well, my dad always said, you don't have any stock options in the public sector so your word is your credibility and people need to be able to take it to the bank and I've always carried that with me. And um, I think more than anything that was... What he said. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Up in the morning, yawning. cops watchin' week to kick the dope in Cause I know I got them dope pens and it don't end so my enemies got no friends. Yeah, it don't end uh You come on my hood and tell me how to live. I think I'm good. That's not how it is, not how it works. So hours I work on my craft, like I'm leaving the earth, like trees in the earth, getting deep in the dirt. Not for reason I search, that's for the birds, like the season that trips. You see, yeah. At first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then well, you're the only reason I hurt. At first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then, well, the only reason I hurt Maybe, baby, that's just how I twist it But I know you got a hit list of misters who diss it So now I can't have your big lips Just wanna love you for real, though But when you come to work, your wake is still told So you can't feel no access to your seal So-and-so, I gotta pay the bill, though And get fed, barely half the meal slow Girl, yeah, love is all I'm really here for Wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching wake to kick the dope Cause they know I got them dope pens and it don't end So my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end I wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watch them wait to kick the dope And cause they know I got them dope pens And it don't end so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end i always been a thinker, so you tellin' me we gon' sing Uh, don't compute in my brain, I don't just shoot I'm careful of my aim, and I'll be shooting to you Care for the same, on the same tree, like some pairs I'm just saying we all have prayers for the same Already there is the plan, cop you a ticket Have you a visit to where this is First, you're the only thing I need on this earth Then, but you're the only reason I hurt At first, you're the only thing I need On this earth, then but You're the only reason I hurt Ralph Friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah It's Ralph Rains.